Welcome back, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. It is late August of 2023, and you know what that means. If you were paying attention last week during New World Next Week, for example, where James Evan Pilato and myself were covering the release of wastewater from Fukushima into the ocean. That's right. You will remember from last week's edition of New World Next Week that the release has begun and that they are now pumping radioactive water into the ocean. But don't worry, there's a big kilometer-long pipe that they're sending it out to sea with, so it'll be fine. Uh, and you can don't have to take my word from that. First, you can take it straight from the horse's mouth. TEPCO, of course, the, uh, the company that operated Fukushima, um, has a, its own official press release up on its website. Commencement of the discharge of water treated with multinuclide removal equipment, ALPS-treated water, into the sea, in which they note TEPCO would like to deeply apologize for the great burden and inconvenience that it has caused on the people of Fukushima and the whole of society as a result of the TEPCO-Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station accident. At the meeting of the Interministerial Council held today, and that was last week, August 22nd, the Japanese government announced that it had made a decision in regards to the commencement period of the discharge of water treated with multinuclide removal equipment into the sea and asked that TEPCO begin preparations for the commencement of the discharge. Of course, as you know, they did begin that discharge last Thursday, and we can get the latest results, don't worry guys, from Kyoto News. Radiation level of seawater off Fukushima below limits, according to Japanese government. The radiation levels of the first samples of seawater collected by the Environment Ministry since the crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant began to release treated water were below detectable limits, it said Sunday. Based on the analysis of seawater sampled Friday morning, the concentrations of tritium, a radioactive material that cannot be removed even after the treatment of contaminated water generated at the Fukushima plant, were at levels that would, quote, have no adverse impact on human health and the environment, the ministry said. But, you know, oddly, some people tend to differ with that assessment. So, for example, uh, Global Voices had a, a good artic- summarization article up recently posted at activistpost.com, Stop the Dump, Pacific Communities Protest Japan's Release of Nuclear-Treated Water, where they note that a number of interested groups in the Pacific region, including Justice Pacific and protesters in Fiji and the Pacific Islands Forum, the official group of Pacific governments, are all uh, rising up in protest against this release. Um, And speaking of the Pacific Islands Forum, back in March of 2022, they appointed a panel of independent experts on nuclear issues to examine specifically this subject of the then-pending, now-happening Fukushima wastewater release issue. I will direct you to a uh, a press release that they had at the time, Pacific Appoints Panel of Independent Global Experts on Nuclear Issues, that talks about the formation of that panel, including one of the members of that panel, Dr. Robert H. Richmond, research professor and director at the Kualo Marine Laboratory in the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And speaking of which, well, Dr. Richmond is here to talk about this, what is happening, what it means, and what we can do about it, more more to the point. So, uh, Dr. Robert Richmond, thank you very much for being on the program today. Oh, thanks so much for the opportunity to uh, share my insights and my opinions with you. Excellent. Well, let's get into the weeds and details of this story. So, as I say, I think my audience will have some sort of general idea of what's going on here, but let's let's just get into some of the specifics about what the issue is here. Obviously, there is radioactive wastewater that is being accumulated at the Fukushima site, something in the order of 1.3 million tons of it that they are 
starting to release. Um, tell us about this release, wh how they have treated the water, and what remains in the water even after treatment. Yeah, well, thanks. So, you know, first and foremost, um, I was not surprised by the decision to start the release, but extremely disappointed. Um, I think uh, Japan and the International Atomic Energy Agency are in a position to do much better than they're doing. And I see a failure of leadership uh, going forward. Um, just for context, uh, as you mentioned, this uh, uh, panel of experts for the Pacific Island Forum, I was asked to be on that about a year and a half ago. Um, there's five of us in total. I'm a marine biologist, so my focus is largely on the marine biology portion. Uh, but I've lived and worked in the Pacific Islands for 44 years now. And I have the unique uh, experience of having lived on a radioactive atoll for two years. I actually did my doctoral dissertation research at Enowetok Atoll in the Marshall Islands, which was a t nuclear testing site for the United States in the 50s and 60s. So for me, it's not just an academic exercise. You know, I've lived at ground zero of nuclear testing program. That's where some people may know of this run at dome. They poured a concrete dome over uh, one of the uh, bomb craters in which they put a lot of nuclear waste. And so for two years, I was able to personally observe um, uptake, what we call trophic transfer, the movement of radionuclides through the food web and the bioaccumulation. So this is a reality for me. And perhaps more importantly, as I saw the human element, you know, people often say, you know, it's just the science, but um, I'm a person as well as a scientist and I'm a parent as well as a scientist. And so I look at the world through that lens as a person and as a parent. Um, not only what are we doing to each other today, but what are we leaving as a legacy for our children and generations to come? Um, by means of context, uh, this disaster was totally preventable. Uh, TEPCO was unquestionably irresponsible in what led to this. And all you have to do is a quick Google search and ask the question, was Fukushima preventable? And two things popped to the top. Uh, one is a very good study done by the Carnegie Institute, uh, think tank, very uh, nonpartisan. And another very good scientific peer-reviewed paper in 2015 that came to the conclusion that TEPCO was told years in advance um, by their own scientists that they could expect a 15-meter slash 45-foot tsunami wave based on the tectonics of the area and the topography. Um, they were even warned by the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, um, that they were not up to safety standards. And you don't have to be a scientist to realize that I have uh, technicians who work in my lab to keep our place going, seawater systems. Anything that would take out um, the reactors would take out their backup generators, their communication system, which is exactly what happened. So this never should have happened, and it did. And it was totally uh, irresponsible behavior on behalf of TEPCO that got us here. So here is a company telling us, trust us, everything's fine. And I have to, you know, go by the old adage, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Uh, I'm not about to take their word on it. And after having interacted with TEPCO and Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Ministry of uh, Economy, Trade and Industry, I have serious concerns about the data, the quality of the data, the adequacy of the data, the accuracy of the data. And of course, when I do, which is what I do often in my job, a ecological risk assessment, asking the question, if and when something goes wrong, then what? And that's the part that I find very troubling. Um, in addition, you know, a lot of um, news media have covered saying what the United Nations approved of it, or at least the International Atomic Energy Agency did. And that's actually not the truth at all. If you look very carefully at what Raphael Grossi, the director of the International Atomic Energy said, <laughs> and these are quotes, 
uh, they don't approve of the plan. And there's a reason for that. IAEA does not have the jurisdiction or the authority that resides with Japan's nuclear regulation agency. But they go further to say that they do not recommend the plan or endorse the plan. And then they go even further to say that they do not provide justifications or alternatives. And so all they do is say that if everything goes to plan, that they will be operating within presently accepted standards. And that is no means a statement of safety or security. Um, I work in the field of what we call ecotoxicology, where we study the effects of stressors and toxicants on organisms and the people who depend on these organisms. And we know full well that history has taught us that what are accepted standards today are always being revised downwards. You start with things like thalidomide, who some people may not know about. Uh, you see you're nodding your head. Mercury in the ocean. We have to be careful of how much tuna we eat. Nobody ever expected that. I dealt with DDT. I deal with a number of pesticides, heavy metals, and all these others. And I've never seen th uh, thresholds and levels uh, raised to say, oh, it's, it's not as bad as we thought it was. It's always been the exact opposite. So a statement to me by the International Atomic Energy Agency that the best they can come up with is we do not approve of the plan, we don't recommend the plan, we don't endorse the plan, we don't provide alternatives, we don't provide justification. We simply state that if everything goes to plan, which you have to ask over 30 years, you know, honestly, I can't make it a week without making a mistake. I don't see how TEPCO is going to go 30 years. So, you know, judge yourselves based on history. Um, but the best they can say is that they'll be within presently accepted standards. Science is uh, moving forward on a weekly, monthly basis and policy and thresholds over years and decades. Some of the uh, standards that are used today are outdated and we have much better tools and techniques. And so to also put it in a context as well, um, our hearts go out to the people of Japan. This was a devastating earthquake that lost lives and caused the disaster that uh, we're dealing with today. And I went to Fukushima last February and I was so saddened to see the town. Uh, we drove through on a bus and the storefronts are still there with all of their things knocked to the ground. People just had to abandon it. It was tragic. But unfortunately it happened. Um, they couldn't prevent the earthquake, but they certainly could have prevented the Fukushima disaster. But a challenge is also an opportunity. And this really worries me and disturbs me. Japan and the International Atomic Energy Agency are in a very unique position to use this challenge as an opportunity to improve the way things go forward. Uh, a terrible tragedy occurred, but this is a learning opportunity. This is not the first nuclear disaster, nor will it be the last. Um, if you look at the scale of nuclear disasters, they're on a scale from one to seven. There have only been two number seven category uh, nuclear disasters in history. The first was Chernobyl, which people have heard about mostly. Um, and that was about 10 times the amount of radiation exposure released into the environment, mostly atmospheric and terrestrial. Fukushima is only the second category seven, and this is primarily marine, hence my involvement with the Pacific Island Forum as a marine biologist. And for that reason, uh, when I look at the data, uh, their ALPS, which you referred to, the Advanced Liquid Processing System, the data are extremely inconsistent, and we've raised these issues with them before. Data are missing on what we, uh, the geek or nerd term is source terms. What's in the tanks? How many tanks did you sample? What degree of confidence do you have that you actually know what's in there? And they didn't even perform the most basic statistical tests that Every student in my laboratory knows something called a power analysis. If they're designing an experiment, how many samples, of what size, how often do you need, 
It's just standard procedure. I mean, these are just the basics that any undergraduate would understand and know. All my students do. When I ask the scientists from TEPCO, all right, can you show me your power analysis to give me confidence that the data you're collecting on what's in the tanks is reliable? They shrugged and said, we never did it. And my jaw dropped. I looked at my colleagues and I said, come on. Well, we're not concerned about what's in the tanks. We're only concerned with what's coming out of the tanks. How in the world can you determine the efficiency, effectiveness of your system if you don't know what you're starting with? And when we started looking at ratios of radionuclides, um, I'm a biologist by training, um, but we have a radiochemist on the uh, panel. We have a nuclear physicist on the panel. And we all looked at each other kind of in shock to say, how can they go by um, with these inconsistencies in data in the outs-treated water in the source terms of what's in the tanks? And when we see these press releases that everything's fine, don't worry about it, um, our responsibility was directly to the Pacific Island Forum and I really credit the Pacific Island leaders for asking the right question. They wanted to do the due diligence. And one of the things I truly respect and appreciate about the leaders of the Pacific, and it's one of the reasons I enjoy working out here, is they're always looking at the long term. You know, not only what's going on today, but what about our children? What about our grandchildren? What about uh, uh, generations to come? And you said, you know, they're measuring the water one day afterwards. The tanks apparently that they're testing are tanks that had very little in the first place. But you're not going to see things showing up quickly, and the greatest concerns are not going to show up quickly. It'll take years and even decades for them to show up. And for that reason, again, not only as a scientist, but as a parent, I'm very concerned about what this means to the Pacific Island. Right. People depend on the ocean. Exactly. Let's address those concerns specifically, because as you say, this is not, I mean, yay, they tested the water two minutes after they began releasing and haven't found any detectable. Well, of course not yet, but obviously this is a 30-year plan. So let's talk about the long-term effects that, that we are concerned about. Um, what are What is ultimately at stake here? What is bioaccumulation? How does this process, how, how will it work in the future? Okay. So when we talk about the effects of ionizing radiation, they fall into two basic categories. One are called the deterministic effects, meaning things that you get immediately. And those are the ones that occur under really bad accidents, uh, skin burns, um, you know, just damage to bodies to the point of immediate uh, radiation sickness and damage of that level. The other one is called the stochastic, which are the ones that uh, uh, occur due to random events. And those are things like the cancers. They don't show up quickly and trying to do what we call the epidemiology of cancer, the cause and effect relationships, is extremely difficult. Um, you know, trying to understand if a person gets cancer, why? It can be genetic, it can be environmental, it could be exposure, it could be tobacco smoking, it could have been other carcinogen, uh, carcinogenic substances. So this is the hard part. But we do know that ionizing radiation does several things at the, what we call sublethal level. We're not expecting to see fish go belly up. We're not expecting for people to die um, in the near future. These are not the kinds of sublethal effects we expect. But ionizing radiation does cause DNA damage, RNA damage, and damage to a really important group of what we call signaling proteins that tell cells what to do. These are the things inside your body that run everything from your metabolism to your immune system to every part of our function and our structure and our health. And this is where we have the concern. Most people are familiar with DNA. That's the stuff that uh, tells future generations what they should look like. You know, I look at you and I have similar characteristics. This is a maternal uh, DNA gene issue. My maternal grandfather was bald and so am I. And so we know that the DNA puts on characteristics. 
our daughter has dark eyes and she has dark brown hair. So this is the DNA that goes forward. But in addition to structures, it's functions. So DNA and RNA are affected by ionizing radiation. Um, it causes damage to the um, double strands of DNA, the single strands of RNA, but it can also cause mutations. And that's why, especially certain kinds of radiation, you'll hear these ridiculous comparisons to say, well, you get more radiation exposure um, flying from Tokyo, Japan to Los Angeles. Well, they're talking about an external exposure to low-level radiation, which is really blocked by your skin or by your clothing. That's a very different scenario than ingesting food, seafood, um, bivalves, uh, lobster, fish that pick, pick up these radionuclides. Once it gets inside your body, that's a totally different story. Your cells have no protection against it. And so this is what we're looking at as the roots. So you ask a very important question, bioaccumulation and what we call the trophic transfer. How does it get inside of people rather than outside? If the ocean was a sterile glass aquarium, the chemistry holds up. And people you know, used to falsely say the solution to pollution is dilution. But what happens in biology does the exact opposite. So I'm not arguing with the physicists who say, well, we did the calculation. And if you look at the volume of the ocean and you look at the concentration of radionuclides, the dilution is substantial, which it is. The math is correct. But what they're ignoring is the biological aspect. As soon as the stuff gets into the water, it starts to get uptaken by organisms. It gets moved up the food chain. The year of the disaster in 2011, tuna were caught off of San Diego, California, that had cesium in it that were, in fact, traced back to Fukushima. The levels were very low, so I don't want to be irresponsible and scare people. Levels were low, but it shows you that the stuff moves across the Pacific in things like tuna. Tuna can get to be 15 years old or even a little bit older, and on a 30-year release, this is going to be a big difference. Uh, it can go into the sediment. It can form reservoirs in the sediment, and these don't reach what we call equilibrium because there are critters that live in the sediment that are constantly turning over like a conveyor belt. And when it gets into the surface, it gets dragged down into the deeper depths. There it gets picked up by worms, by snails, by crabs, by lobster, whatever's there, and they get eaten and then moved up the food chain as well. Tritium is not the one that we're most concerned about, but there is a concern because there's a kind of tritium called organically bound tritium, uh, OBT are the initials. If you do a quick Google search on OBT, you can see there are varieties, one called non-escapable, as the name implies. When you get it into your tissues and liver where there's fat, it sticks. And so we have data to show that bottom fish can have organically bound tritium that resides in the liver for over 500 days. Um, if you drink tritiated water, which is something they said, well, you can drink this water, it's below drinking water standards, nobody's talking about drinking ocean water. And when you drink tritiated water, it goes through, it goes through your kidneys and it passes out in a couple of days. That's not the issue. Our concern is exactly what we're pointed to, biological uptake, bioaccumulation to the point where even low level beta emitters, which tritium is, once it gets in the cells, it's continuing to put out this ionizing radiation. And uh, the ones I'm more concerned about, and so are the radiochemists, are not the tritium as much as things like cobalt-60, cesium-137, strontium-90, ruthenium-106. Strontium is nicknamed the bone seeker. Um, sounds very intimidating, and it is, because strontium can get into bone. Why does that matter? Well, because the bones are the site where our red blood cells and white blood cells are made constantly. The last thing you want is ionizing radiation in the proximity of cells that are constantly being produced, because that's where the mutations can occur. 
And those are the things that lead to these stochastic issues of cancer. So when we put it together, we know that there is a problem, that it's not just dilution, that the biology undercuts this quote unquote dilution issue, and it begins to bioaccumulate, biologically transfer. And as a marine biologist who studied these ecosystems and the people who depend on the ecosystems, these are a huge concern when we look at the 30-year timeframe. This is a concern, but we are talking today in the context of my Solutions Watch podcast. So rather than simply talking about the problem, let's talk about things that can people can and should be doing to mitigate this problem. And I think there are the two levels of that. There's the personal and then there's the national. Um, and you have noted some of the concerns that obviously are uh, that arise in the wake of this release. For example, you note the, uh, the tuna caught on the other side of the Pacific with cesium levels that were trace back to Fukushima during the uh, the release the the initial release so it does show that this can obviously transport across the ocean this is why presumably the Pacific Islands Forum and many other Pacific uh, nations are very concerned about what's going on right now and it obviously raises the question for people out out there right now who are looking around and saying there's nothing I can do about this problem should I just stop eating fish from the Pacific altogether <laughs> so you know, I really agree that the incident occurred. And, you know, again, we understand they've got 1.3 million tons of accumulated water sitting on site. And so they feel like they have to do something. Um, the answer is, first and foremost, that there's plenty of room on the site. All you have to do is a Google Earth view of that place. And you can see there's a lot of space. Nobody's going to be building stuff there. No one's going to be living right. there. Right. Actually, can I can I address that point? Because that is something yeah. that I've seen in the Please. media coverage of this. They They frame it in the sense that they are going to have to start constructing various structures and what have you in order to actually start removing the core. And in order to make room for that, they have to, well, they have to get rid of these tanks. And so they, they, I've seen this framed, at least in the media coverage of this, there's no choice. We have to get rid of the tanks, so we have to get rid of the water. Uh, that doesn't seem to make intuitive sense to me. You could just store the tanks slightly further away. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So there's no shortage of space. And when I went through there, two things that really struck me. A, there's a lot of room that's not going to be usable for anything else. Number two is they need to pour a lot of concrete. They need to build up the seawall to the height it should have been. And they were told years in advance that they needed a much higher seawall. And so concrete needs to be used for that. They have what's called an underground ice barrier. They put an ice barrier underground to try to limit the amount of groundwater that's getting into the three uh, nuclear reactors that are in meltdown. That should be replaced by concrete. There are bags of radioactive soil all over the site there that should be stabilized with concrete bunkers so that the next typhoon doesn't wash it all into the ocean. Everywhere I look, there's a need for concrete, and that's one of the uh, documents I sent you. We actually did a group uh, um, kind of calculation on an alternative. If they were to use the stored water, um, anyone who mixes concrete knows it takes a lot of water. We calculated that instead of 30-year time horizon, they could use up the stored water within five to seven years, uh, just building concrete that needed to be used on site. The advantage of that is, number one, is you take away the transboundary concern. Once they release that uh, uh, treated radioactively contaminated water into the ocean, it's truly transboundary. It's not going to stay within... Japan's territorial waters. Um, I really worry about the people of Japan first and foremost because of location, but number two, it will go across the Pacific. We know that already. It will get into organisms and go. If they put it into concrete, it's not going anywhere. Tritium in particular has a half-life of 12.3 years. 
it, after 50 years, if you put it into concrete, you're down to 6% of the ionizing radiation that you start with, meaning four half-lives. It goes from 100% to 50 to 25 to 12.5 to 6.25. So 48 years is enough to dramatically reduce the amount of ionizing radiation. And then you take away all the biological impacts because once it's bound in concrete, it's not available for marine organisms to take up. There's no way it's going to get into the food chain. And if they kept it on site for all of these construction events, um, you've taken away the problem of transboundary, transgenerational, biological uptake, and everything else. And you've done so in a highly responsible manner. Um, you know, just common sense tells you that if the ALPS treatment, the advanced liquid processing system that we've been told time and time again is going to make sure the water is so safe that you can drink it, again, I pointed out, that's not the issue. Um, then why in the world is Japan and TEPCO so adamantly opposed to keeping it on site? Anybody would ask the common sense question. If you say it's safe, then why is it not safe for you to keep on your site that's already radioactively contaminated? And you bring, brought up another really important question that we don't know the answer to. When they're talking about um, decommissioning Fukushima with three cores and meltdown, what is that going to look like? And how much water, how badly contaminated? One of the statements they make is, well, uh, all nuclear power plants release tritiated water. And the fact is that, yes, there are nuclear power plants throughout the world that do release tritiated water. I'm not saying that it's a good thing, and I'm a firm believer that other people's bad behavior is not an excuse for me to be behave badly. And so, you know, call me crazy, but if other people treat people badly, that's not an excuse that I say, that, well, then it's okay for me. I don't. But number two is there's a huge difference between water, cooling water going through um, heat exchangers and a normally functioning nuclear power plant versus water that's in direct contact with three cores that are in nuclear meltdown, hence the concern, not tritium as much as some of the others. There are 62 radionuclides overall that are, are at risk here. About 30 you can, and TEPCO has kind of ignored. And I get that, it's fine because they're sh really short half-lives, so they're not gonna be a big issue. But there's about 30 of concern and of those 30, there's a dozen of very big concern that have not been addressed adequately. And in the data that I've reviewed, um, they're actually at levels after treatment that exceed those that are acceptable standards. So there's a real disconnect between what they're saying and what we're reviewing and trying to bring the two together. That's why we say at very least, this is way premature. And at very most, it's in fact really ill-advised to do what they're doing right now. In fact, even with the drinkable water claim, which, as you say, is nonsensical because no one's drinking ocean water, but even with that claim, I did note in one of the reports I was reading, I can't remember the exact numbers off my head, uh, off the top of my head, but something along the lines of 1,500 becquerels per liter or whatever they're, they're diluting it down to or treating it down to um, is supposedly below the WHO acceptable limits for drinking standards, but above the EU acceptable limits. So, again, it depends which acceptable limits you're looking at. But as we say, that's beside the point because no one's thinking about drinking the ocean water. But I, yeah, I want to direct people's attention to this article that you are a co-author of that was su submitted by that panel um, to the Pacific Islands Forum back in June of this year, Minimizing Harm, the Concrete Option for Solving the Accumulation of Radioactively Contaminated Water at the Fukushima Daiichi Nuclear Power Plant Site. Such a simple idea. And I, I, I would struggle to think of why the Japanese government and TEPCO would not be embracing this idea with open arms. But I'm going to assume, given what is just transpiring right now, that either they haven't acknowledged this at all or they have outright rejected this idea. 
they outright rejected it. And we knew from the start when we went in after the first couple rounds with TEPCO and the Japanese government agencies that their decision was made. And they were just uh, pro forma going through the motions. Um, they put together a scientific experiment. And I, for those of you that can't see, air quotes. Um, uh, they put a bunch of bottom fish in a fiberglass tank and they said that this is going to tell them about the uptake of tritium. So I asked a few questions, like, what are you feeding those fish? Uh, well, you know, they kind of have them in Holland. I said, what are you feeding the fish? Well, commercial pellets. Okay, well, they don't eat commercial pellets in the environment. They eat things that live in the sediment, like worms and snails and crabs and shrimp. If you wanted to do the experiment properly, you don't put them in a fiberglass tank, and apparently they still have the video showing that the fish haven't died yet. Of course, they're not going to die. Nobody's expecting it but you would get the same results they're doing with the fish if you put in a kitchen sponge. It'll absorb it till it reaches equilibrium. Then you take it out and put it into clean water and it'll do what we call depurate. It'll get rid of it. So I said, the way to do the experiment properly is you put sediment in the tank, then you put in the things that they normally eat. Then the tritium will go into the sediment, it'll go into these organisms, then through trophic transfer, it'll go into the fish. And then when they say below detectable limits, we're looking at, well, how good are your detection techniques? Many of the protocols we've seen are really not good. They're not up to the standard. And this experiment was a classic example. So on three occasions, I told the guy from TEPCO, this is a terribly designed experiment that is not there to give you accurate information that's of any value. I'll offer to design the experiment for you. I'll do the, I'll do the power analysis. So you have the statistics. We'll help you set it up and analyze the data for free. We're, we're there for you to do it right. And of course, they rejected it. And so of all things, they get Raphael Grossi, the head of the IAEA, when he visited the site to be the poster boy for bad science. He's in front of this tank holding the feed and it became a meme among some of our scientists going like, I don't know what's scarier, the fact that they're considering this to be good science or the fact that the head of the IAEA doesn't know that he was set up. And that to me is very concerning. I'm not attacking him. He's got a master's in history, his PhD is international relations. He's not expected to know the science. I don't know international relations and people who know me know I know nothing about diplomacy, nuance or anything of those sorts. But as a scientist, I and my colleagues are very strong. And when I look at things like that, it's showing that their science is being used to obfuscate rather than clarify. And to me, that's totally irresponsible. It's uh, outright disgusting, really, considering what is at stake. And as we've noted here, there are many people around the Pacific who are very upset about this. What can people be doing proactively about this problem? Yeah, I think it's political will. You know, people make choices, and I'm a firm believer that if the communities will lead, the leaders will follow. You know, that's both the blessing and the curse of democracy. Um, if we don't like our leaders, it's our own fault. Um, because we chose them or we've been manipulated to choose them. But if people say this is enough and this is wrong, um, one of my colleagues on the panel and I have a uh, uh, editorial coming out in Science Magazine on Friday, which I'll send to you and it'll be available on the web. But we address this bigger issue of ocean health. You know, we're not painting on a blank canvas here. It's not as if, okay, it's only going to be radionuclides. Climate change, plastics, overexploitation, uh, mercury, heavy metals, pesticides, the oceans are in decline with an impact not only on sea life, but everybody who depends on sea life ecologically, economically, and culturally. And that's the people of the Pacific Islands. The Pacific Islanders did nothing to contribute to this disaster. They have nothing to gain. The Atomic Energy Agency has a series of documents called 
general safety guidance documents, GSG documents. Number eight, GSG eight, specifically deals with transboundary issues. The United Nations has a, this is from 2021 to 2030, the United Nations decade, ocean decade, in which there is an international focus on improving the health of the ocean to improve the health of the people who depend on it. This violates the very core principles of the ocean decade. In June of this year, there is a new high seas treaty that was signed by the United Nations, uh, as via the United Nations. 193 nations signed onto it, which deals with this kind of transboundary issues, things that go beyond territorial limits to talk about a cleaner ocean as a legacy for the future. This violates it as well. There are three United Nations rapporteurs that deal with human rights, human rights and toxicants, human rights and food. All of the United Nations rapporteurs, all three, have condemned this as being wrong. So here you have the IAEA, which is part of the United Nations, who on their website, under their mission, it says to promote the non-aggressive use of nuclear technologies. They're not an independent third party by any stretch of the imagination. I looked at the 2021 budget. Japan um, provided 54 million euros to the IAEA, $63 million US. That's hardly what I would call a lack of conflict of interest. And so here you have this agency. Um, the best that you can describe what they're saying is plausible deniability. Um, and when we actually ask them in our meetings with them to say, what responsibility and liability do you have if and when things go wrong? We have none. It's up to Japan. It's Japan's decision. All we do is state that if they everything goes to plan, that they will be within presently accepted limits. That's plausible deniability. That's not responsibility. Well, this is such a huge issue, but it is it is staggering to think that there is a relatively simple and straightforward thing on the table, a proposal on the table that is not being taken here, especially because there clearly is anger, there is public interest in this issue, there's a lot of political pressure to be brought to bear on this issue. One would think it's not too late for, at, the, at any rate, for them to adopt this concrete proposal at any time. So, no, it's um, not too late. Exactly. This uh, considering this is a 30-year plan, I think we still have time. Yes. And that's the other point, too, is that, once again, you know, to look at it from just the human side and as a parent, you know, what kind of legacy are we leaving for the future? You know, can't we do better? And this is the part that I find is very frustrating because I do work a lot at the interface between science and policy. And hence, my sincere gratitude to you for taking this on is that science has a responsibility to society. Um, you know, you can shoot the messenger all you want to, but if we're not providing adequate and accurate information in a format that people can understand and use, then we're being irresponsible. And I do. Uh, it's a mea culpa. I say some of the problems we have today have been a failure of science not to do good work, but to not necessarily do a good job in communicating to decision makers and to people. Everyone on the Pacific Island Forum leadership team, they're extremely intelligent, bright, well-trained people. Most of them are not scientists, but they're extremely bright people and get it. And so we need to simply do our job as scientists to provide the due diligence, but also to go that extra step to make sure that the data, the information we're providing is in the way people can understand. And the Pacific Islanders understand and appreciate more than anyone. What we do today is going to be what we leave for our future generations. And if we mess up, it's gonna take the toll on them, hence our responsibility and Japan, and the IAEA could do the right thing today and say, okay, we're going to stop, we're going to reevaluate, we're going to put our technologies and funding to doing the right thing, 
and leave a far better legacy for the future in an ocean that's already severely compromised, in a world in which people's health is already deteriorating as a result of the environmental human health linkages, surely we can and must do better. Well, it is a dictum that I often uh, uh, state here on the podcast is that the political leaders love to get out in front of a parade and pretend like they're leading it. So I think if the people are directing them in the direction of a concrete solution, pun intended, to this problem, then perhaps we can actually bear some some real political pressure on something that will actually affect change rather than just sort of vague protest about what is happening. No, we actually have an alternative that could be implemented here. So uh, I will, once again, I will include in the show notes uh, for this conversation the link to that paper, once again, Minimizing Harm, the Concrete Option for Solving the Accumulation of radioactivity, Radioactively Contaminated Water, etc., etc. Also, a write-up on that uh, proposal from 360info.org earlier this year, Alternatives to Dumping Fukushima Wastewater into the Pacific. Uh, I will link up all of the other articles and, and sources that we've talked about today. Are there any other resources you'd like to direct people to if they are concerned about this topic and want to know more about what they can do with regards to mitigating its impact? Yeah, we'll have another um, kind of overview coming out this uh, Friday um, that I'll make available. Um, there are the links that I sent you and, you know, just do what most people do when they're cruising the Internet. Go ahead and do the kind of daily search, Google search on news. Um, it's really disturbing to me that, you know, I have colleagues in Japan who are excellent scientists. I mean, these are some of the tops in the world. Uh, there's Jamstech, the Japan Agency for Marine Technology, uh, Ocean Technology. These are some of the top scientists in the world. And we know each other. We've worked together. And they've said they've been censored. They've been told to withdraw papers. Um, they can't openly talk about things. Uh, we understand that there's a law that actually censors the uh, um, uh, journalists as well. And that says something. If people are not able to access the accurate information with, from within Japan, last I checked, they haven't censored the Internet <laughs> uh, access from Japan yet. And I would just ask people to do their due diligence. Um, there's myself and lots of other good scientists and reputable sources. And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but certainly from everything we've seen right now, there are better ways. And that's what we're looking for is it's one thing to say no. Um, but in order to do that, you need to be able to say yes to certain things. And that's what we've tried to do. Be proactive, be constructive, be engaged. And if there's a way in which we can help, I said at any time, I've made <laughs> numerous offers to provide assistance pro bono because it's the right thing to do. And there are scientists around the world. And, you know, the IAEA also has some of the best scientists in the world. They have really good people. But once again, what I call it out, it's politics, it's expediency, and it's money. That's what's determined this outcome. And that's not the basis for sound decision making uh, for now and into the future. All right. A lot to think about. And as I say, I think uh, people are rightly upset and hopefully they can be directing that anger in a, a more um, positive direction uh, to actually affect change. But I think we'll leave this conversation here for today. I do look forward to hearing updates about this in the future. So I hope we can talk again. Uh, Dr. Robert Richmond, thank you very much for your time today. Well, thanks so much, James. And thanks to all the people who are concerned about it and hopefully will peacefully um, find a way to uh, encourage decision makers to make better decisions.